There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you'll only look Then you will see On WCN-TV Welcome to today's WCN-TV program. This is Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. Our guest today is a researcher, speaker, and the author of the book, Rediscovering the American Covenant, Roadmap to Restore America. Mark Burrell is our guest, and you can find his website at defendamericanliberty.com. I just want to start off with a few quotes here um, from his website. Marcus said, America is in decline because the modern church has ignored or downplayed the citizenship responsibility all Christians have in the communities and nations where they live. He adds, if we are to be able to live in peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness as God desires for us, Christians must re-engage in the business of self-government. But as we all know, this is not happening. Mark's book provides fresh light on biblical principles for civil government and the citizenship duty all Christians have. He provides a blueprint or a roadmap for us and an action plan, which is what we need most of all these days. People have a lot of things to uh, complain about, but no action plan, but uh, we're going to find out more today. So Mark, welcome to WCN-TV. Thanks for being here and joining us on the program. Rob, thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, I only recently became acquainted with you and your and your work and your ministry, and so why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to our audience with your background and a little bit of an overview of your ministry, and tell us a little bit about your book, Rediscovering the American Covenant. Yeah, so I'm originally from the Philadelphia area. I grew up in a home and uh, ended up getting married fairly young. In fact, we're celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary uh, this year. My lovely wife, Charlene, we have four children and six grandchildren. So we're a a very close and growing family. I uh, grew up, went to college, uh, got an engineering degree. I'm in my 40th year in industry as an engineer. I like to tell people I'm a recovering engineer. For those of you who have worked closely with engineers, you know what I mean by that. And uh, in the process, I've uh, been on my own spiritual journey. In my mid-20s, 
I had a lot of questions about my faith. And fortunately, the Lord brought a mentoring couple into our lives. And uh, Dave Stuckey was his name. He ended up to be an excellent teacher. And uh, I had lots of questions growing up. And, and uh, within about 15 minutes of meeting, we were talking theology. And I, I said, I've got all these questions. And I just don't feel like I'm getting clear, straight answers. And he said, well, you just need systematic theology. I'll take you through it. So he gave me a book list. And for a period of about four years, we met once a month for about four or five hours, pouring through theology. And, uh, and that's where I got my education. This is the late 80s, early 90s. And from there, I started a teaching ministry. So I've got over 30 years teaching the Bible. Uh, I, I love teaching the Bible. To, to me, it's the most important thing that we can be spending our time on. And uh, having grown up in the Philadelphia area, I was taught that we were a Christian nation, but in the 80s, I started to hear a different narrative about the founding, you know, that that uh, we were not a Christian nation, that the founders were deists and, you know, all these problems. And when I asked around, a lot of people agreed with that. And so I thought, well, maybe I just really didn't get the right education. And then in the early mid 90s, I would say, after I got grounding in, uh, in theology, I thought to myself, I should I should understand this a little bit better because the big question I had was if the revolution was all about taxation without representation. In other words, they didn't want to pay their taxes. But Jesus said you should pay your taxes. Then how could the whole thing have been biblically justifiable? That was the question I had. And so I started picking up books in the 90s, uh, around 2000. It dawned on me that I ought to apply my systematic theology approach to this question. And so I read through the Bible. I was looking for all kinds of passages, anything that had to do with nations and liberty and rights and justice. And Rob, I was flabbergasted at how much information I found once I was looking for it. And so I started to lay it out. I, I tried to like, you know, put the Declaration and the Constitution off to the side and just let the Bible speak for itself. And I was amazed as I started to piece this thing together. You know, it's all data for an engineer, right? We're like, how do we fit all this together and come up with an interpretation that seems to be consistent from Genesis to Revelation. And, and I slowly realized that not only were these guys Christians, they were theological giants because they followed the template from the Bible. This comes from, from Israel, roughly Exodus 19 to 24, for how to start a nation. And they did that in the Declaration. And, uh, and they followed then the rest of the guidance in, in the first five books of the Bible on how to govern justly. And so I started to realize that, that Israel uh, is many things. It's certainly God's chosen people. But it's also a nation we can turn to to see how, what God expects uh, of a nation in terms of how to start and how to govern justly. And we know that's what he, what he wants because he demands it in Genesis 9, 1 through 6. Specifically, verses 5 and 6, he says, I demand an accounting for the shedding of innocent blood. So I started reading through that, and I started incorporating it into my teaching. Uh, some Christians liked it, as you can imagine. Some Christians, uh, and this is in the evangelical church, you know, they don't want to hear it. They're, they're pretty much, you know, submit and pray, come what may. That's sort of their, their theology, and they get that, of course, from Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2. And, uh, and so I, I found I was not very warmly received. I was surprised about that. This is like in late 2000s. Uh, well, there is, a, there, there is a, uh, uh, 
a serious problem with uh, not just evangelicals, but a lot of a lot of denominations uh, misinterpreting Romans thirteen. I'll just leave it at that. So that that's well, caused caused a lot of problems. What I what I came to realize there's there's really five questions that Christians should be asking about nations and governing. The first question is, what does God expect? from nations. What what is his desire from the nations? And we get that from Genesis 9, 1 through 6, which is basically he wants nations to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and govern justly. It's that simple. And then you can ask the question, okay, well, how do you start a nation and how do you govern a nation? And as I said, you get that by looking at the example of Israel. And in Exodus, uh, basically 19 through 24, there are uh, four steps that they take. They acknowledge God, they appeal to God for help. They commit to the Mosaic Covenant. We refer to it as the Mosaic Covenant, but it was really a national covenant to start the nation of Israel from an official standpoint. And then they declared it. They built a monument and offered sacrifices. And, and that's, in fact, exactly the pattern that our founders followed. Acknowledge, appeal, commit, and declare. And then, so that's the first question. You know, how does that all look? Second question then for Christians is, well, uh, how should I, uh, uh, how should I govern justly? What does that actually look like? And you get that again from the nation of Israel. I incorporate seven principles. Again, I just sort of pull them out from Exodus through Deuteronomy on how to govern. It's things like you have to re- revere the moral law as the not only the the standard for sin and personal behavior, but also as the legal standard. For any laws that your nation passes, a law that's not in harmony with the moral law, it's simply null and void. It's illegitimate, like the recently passed Respect for Marriage Act, uh, ironically named. Uh, so that's an example of a principle. Representative government's another one. The the penalty for crime should match the level uh, of the crime itself. That's where I and I, hand for hand, per foot, that's what that's referring to. Liberty is critical. Notice throughout the Bible, God does not demand that we follow him. He's constantly inviting us, constantly encouraging us to make a choice. Uh, But interestingly, in in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, he demands justice. And that's really the essence of the question, because you have to ask yourself, who does he expect to do that? Does he expect people that don't know him to govern justly? And the answer is no, of course not. Does he expect people that have rejected him to govern justly? Can't be that. Does he expect new believers who are, you know, getting to know God or reading their Bible? Well, that would be better than someone who who rejects God. But how much do they know about governing justly if they haven't read the Bible? That leaves the last group, which is mature believers who know their Bible. That's who he expects to govern. So that's the kind of argument I build. And that's the answer to the second question. He expects us to do it. The the third question is, how should believers respond to a governing authority that's governing justly? And that's where Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2 apply. Because if you read Romans 13 carefully, it says that they punish those who do evil and reward those who do good, which leads to the fourth question, which is, well, how should we respond if we have a, a governing authority that's governing unjustly? And we see how to respond by looking at all these different stories throughout the Bible, whether you look at Daniel, who's obviously in captivity, uh, and and if they told him to do something that was unbiblical, he just ignored it. 
Uh, and you go all the way to the New Testament where the Pharisees told the, the apostles, stop preaching Jesus. And they're like, we're not going to stop doing that. So you have to restore, you have to confront and restore government. And this is where we are right now, which leaves the last question, the fifth question, which is the subtitle of the book, Roadmap to Restore America. The fifth question is, how do you restore a wayward nation back to God? And again, we go back and look, well, did this happen to Israel? And the answer is yes. You look at, at uh, Josiah, who lived in the uh, 7th century BC, and you look at Nehemiah, who went back to rebuild the wall. Both of those leaders did something very important. In the case of Josiah, they were cleaning out the temple, and they found the book of the law, and they took it to the king. They read it to the king, and he's like, we're in trouble because we're not following this. And what did he do? He ended up getting all the people together. They read the covenant aloud, and they recommitted. Nehemiah did the same thing. When they completed the building of the wall, Ezra came out, read the book of the law, and, uh, and they recommitted. And what did God do in those two cases? He blessed their reigns for a season while they were faithful to that covenant. So Rob, that's long, but basically what I assert is that the most important document that we have in our American founding is the Declaration of Independence. It's our founding covenant. It's not just a newsflash to King George. It's actually a contract, a covenant that the founders drafted and approved following the biblical template to the letter. And that what we need to do based on the biblical template is to recommit as a nation back to God. And so that's what I'm trying to do with the book. I'm trying to explain this in very clear theological terms to, to, to give Christians that full argument because they all just go to really answering the question, how should I live if I have a just governing authority? But that's not where we are. No, that's not where we are. We haven't. <laughs> there, is, there, is, there is a serious deficit of justice in our country. And um, um, unfortunately, we have uh, an abundance of pastors preaching Romans 13 incorrectly. And, and uh, you cannot uh, compromise with evil or wickedness you, you just you cannot uh, go along with these government mandates um nope. bl blindly they're answering the third question they're not asking the other four questions right so that's and what i realized rob when i was going through all this that it was the strongest theological argument that i've seen and i've read a lot of christian historians uh you know i'm a big fan of wall builders and bill federer who endorsed my book there's a lot of great books out there on American history, history, but I hadn't seen them, you know, make that argument theologically as clear as what I had seen when I went through the Bible, like a, like an engineer looking at all the data. And so I started to think, well, maybe God wants me to write a book. I did not wake up wanting to be an author. And it took me 10 years to write this because I was sort of figuring it out as I went. And uh, about five years in, I realized that the story was the covenant and the fact that we had lost sight of it or that we have, uh, unfortunately, a number of our fellow citizens who have fundamentally rejected it, uh, many who aren't even aware of it. So what I'm trying to do is is get the word out, and uh, and that's why I, I slugged through and got the book out. It came out last October. I'm trying to get the word out to Christians uh, around the country to hopefully buy it and get re-educated on, on this incredible part of our faith 
that they're really missing out on. So the book is called Rediscovering the American Covenant. Um, Mark, are, are you telling us that uh, that God has made a covenant with America? I would say it's the other way around. We went to God, our forefathers went to God and said, and you know, now that I've said the four things, they, they acknowledged God in the first two paragraphs. The first paragraph is critical because they referred to the law of nature and of nature's God. That's a direct reference to the first phrase, law of nature, to the law as known through conscience or reason. And then the second part of that, end of nature's God, that's a direct reference to the moral law as delivered in the, in the holy scriptures or the Bible. And I have all the quotes to back that up from that era. That is what they meant by that phrase. So basically what they're saying is, based on our right to live according to the moral law, we're going to explain why we're separated. And then you get into the second paragraph and they say, we believe in, you know, God-given inalienable rights, among them life, which comes from Genesis 9, 5, and 6, liberty, which is explained and expressed throughout the Bible, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is another one, Rob, that uh, the church has bought the progressive explanation that that pursuit of happiness, that phrase means basically eat, drink, and be merry, pursue whatever you want. And that is not what they meant by that. What they meant was to allow people to go on their own personal faith journey. And hopefully that faith journey meant accepting Christ, but if it didn't, then that was on them. And they, if, if you look at the Bible and ask about happiness, you'll see that it means living in harmony with the moral law. And in fact, Psalm 119, the longest Psalm, 176 verses, they all talk about Essentially, if you follow God's law, you'll have a happy life. And so that's what the founders meant. Uh, that's what they were trying to defend. Let everyone go through their own personal faith journey. Uh, and that's what the pursuit of happiness. And then they said, for this reason, governments were instituted among men, deriving their just powers by the consent of the government. And remember, that's what happened back in Genesis 19 and 20. Moses came down and said, God says, if we follow this law, he'll bless us. But if we don't, he'll curse us. Are we in or not? And they all said, we're in. And so that's that's where this idea of consent comes from. They didn't just come up with these ideas. They pulled them directly from the Bible. And then they went on to say, uh, you know, prudence. This is another important part. Prudence dictates whether or not you should, you know, how you should respond to tyranny. But they felt they were at a point where the king was just completely encroaching on the rights, and they saw it as a defensive action. Uh, and so the, the, that part of the declaration explains that. Then, of course, 27 reasons, not one, not five, not 10, 27 examples of how the king was violating their rights. And then you get down to the fact that they announced that they're separating. And the last paragraph is really amazing. It starts out by saying, appealing to the supreme ruler of the universe for the rectitude of our intentions. Rectitude means truthfulness. In other words, they were saying, listen, we believe this is true, and we are appealing to you to help us see this separation through. And then the last sentence, uh, uh, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then they signed it, which meant treason if they were caught. So 
so these folks were completely committed. The name of the dec of the document is a declaration, which is uh, what we're supposed to do. And uh, and so that's that's what the founders did, and uh, it, they were following the theological template, the biblical template for nation starting, and that's something that anyone can do. Back to your original question, uh, any the pilgrims when the pilgrims came in 1620. Remember, they wanted to join Jamestown. And when the prevailing winds would not let them sail south, they thought, maybe God wants us to settle here. There's a problem, though. There's no governing authority. So they drafted the Mayflower Compact. And if you read the Mayflower Compact, much shorter, it's got the same flow. They acknowledge God. They appeal for help. They, uh, they, they commit to what they're doing because they all signed it. And, of course, it was a, it was a declaration. So this template is available for any nation to follow. That's what I conclude from this. So the, the concepts are not only do they apply to America, they apply to any nation where Christians come together and appeal to God to, to heal their land and, uh, and you know, follow the template. So Mark, you're encouraging Christians to get engaged in uh, politics, right? <laughs> I am in the business yeah. of governing. Right. And and you talk about active citizenship in your book. What is what exactly does that mean uh, to the average churchgoer? And and what can we do? Because this is my biggest frustration. What can we do to get Christians to be active instead of apathetic? So uh, let me answer the citizenship question first. Uh, what does a good citizen look like? This, we need to talk about this. A good citizen, first off, in a biblical uh, worldview, means that they recognize that they have responsibility to God, that they're a sinner. First thing they have to do is take care of their sin problem. They need to get to the foot of the cross, confess their sin, and, and get saved, obviously. Then the very next thing they need to do is to weave the moral law into their life, to seek to try and live God's way. We're never going to be sinless this side of eternity, but we should strive to lend to live a sinless life. So that means getting your own act together, taking responsibility, not being a burden to others, but you know, learning a vocation, go and get a job, take care of yourself, take care of your family. And by the way, if you get married, that's four step process I talked about, you know, acknowledge, appeal, commit and declare. It's the same process that you follow when you get married. And when you get married and start having kids, Guess what principles you, you should follow to govern justly in your home? It's the same seven principles. In fact, I'm, I'm working on, a, on a, uh, a book now, or I should say a workbook, that focuses on covenant keeping in the family because I'm, I'm thinking that that might be a great place for people to first apply these ideas and then it becomes a, an easier thing to then take the next step, which is to recognize that you have a responsibility in the community and state and nation in which you live to help establish liberty and justice, justice based on the moral law for everyone. And if you do that, that's how you achieve freedom. In fact, I have a chapter called uh, the formula for freedom. Again, I'm an engineer, right? I like formulas. And the formula is you got to have liberty. That's the First Amendment. You got religious liberty, the ability to have and express opinions. Civil liberty is the ability to accumulate and manage property, including your body, and you know refusing to take the jab. 
And so if you have those two things, if you got liberty and you have justice, you produce an environment, you equal freedom. And so that's what we as citizens need to do. That is our calling. And it could be as simple as voting for people that agree with the principles in the Declaration. The idea of is a moral law, that rights are based on the moral law, you know, the, that there should be a representative kind of government. It should match the level of the crime, liberty. And then the seventh principle, by the way, is teaching this to your children and your children's children. So at a minimum, Rob, citizenship looks like first get right with God, take care of yourself, take care of your family. And as you, you know, get that in place, then you need to focus on uh, taking care of your community and start at the local level. That's that is how to start. Well, your idea about the uh, the workbook for the family is the best news I've heard all day because that really is where it needs to start. I, I hope you follow through on that and and uh, get it get it produced soon because we need it. We need it. Yeah, yeah a couple have... churches that have expressed interest, so I'm I am focusing <laughs> on that. That'll get done. Good. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, because that really is where it needs to start. And once we get that right, we can move on and do other things. Um, but um, time is of the essence, as you know, because things are things are out of control here right now. Yeah. And uh, let me just ask you, Mark, do you, do you see our current so-called leaders here in America deliberately and intentionally trying to destroy this country? I from do. Within? I think if you look at... The Democratic Party, and you know, I'm just going to throw out some percentages. I think about 40% of America would call themselves Democrat. Of that 40%, I think there's about 20%, or let's call it 10% of the nation, that is fully vested in systematically destabilizing the institutions that we have in our nation. They firmly believe that you know socialism or communism is the way to go. Uh, they, these are people that have fundamentally rejected our national founding covenant. It's like we're in a bad marriage, <laughs> a bad relationship. Well, and, I would uh, I would venture to guess that that ten percent you're talking about, uh, most of them are in Congress. A lot of them are. I, I agree. Or they're they're uh, you know attorneys that have been funded and elected uh, and supported by George Soros. There's no doubt that that's what's happening. And so then if you look at the rest of the Democratic Party, just to answer your question, I don't think all of them are intent trying to, to um, take America down, but I think a lot of them are just completely ignorant of these great principles that make up our national American identity. We have an identity crisis. I had an opportunity to hear uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy talk at Hillsdale recently. And, and he said this, and he's right over the target. We have a, an identity crisis in America, and our identity is wrapped up, codified, signed, sealed, and delivered in the Declaration of Independence. And so, uh, you know, overall, to get Christians engaged, uh, I, I wrote the book. I know it's a heavy book for, for most, but I felt like I needed to provide really a complete end-to-end manual for pastors and church leaders who, you know, they want a strong theological answer. And uh, and I provide that. I also provide a lot of Q&A, questions about how to think about slavery, the three-fifths clause, you know, were they deists? Uh, a lot of questions are, we can talk about that a little later. 
so the first book is a little heavy, but it's meant to be the pastors to use. And so, as I said, I'm focusing on a simpler version so that we can educate Christians because number one, we've got to get the church, we've got to get Christians re-engaged. And then number two, we got to get God engaged. You know, I, I look at this again as a program manager. That is my background. I'm an engineer. I look at this thing and say, well, uh, people that hate America have infiltrated every institution. Uh, do we? Can we turn this around our own strength? Is there a plan? Are there details? Is there a strategy that will work to turn this around? And I got to tell you, as a program manager, I look at this in man's eyes and say, this is just about hopeless. But when I look at the Bible and I ask the question, well, did God tell us how to turn a wayward nation back to him? And the answer is he did through the example of Josiah and Nehemiah. And so just as I'm extremely pessimistic, because that's the engineer in me, that we're going to be able to turn this thing around in our own strength. I'm very optimistic that if we follow the biblical template, that God will heal our land. These people you know, they are so diametrically opposed ideologically. We need a miracle kind of healing for a significant chunk of the population in America to turn this around. And I think that's what God means when he says, heal our land. So if the Bible says it, why wouldn't we believe it? <laughs> and why wouldn't we try it? That's, uh, that's the, the last chapter is all about that, recommitting. Um. Do you feel, Mark, that we can get this done uh, working with the uh, institutional churches, or do you think it would be a better idea to uh, try to engage the remnant? I I, I don't see the institutional churches doing the Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. <laughs> you know, yeah, they I, they I they right. they talk about it, they recite it, they know it by heart, but they have no intention of ever looking into it. So they're pretty much set in their ways. And what I find very disappointing is they're not open to a, a reasonable, rational argument. You know, I love the passage in Isaiah. Come, let us reason. You know, let's lay this out. And and I'll show you in the Old Testament where all these principles come from. And then I'll you in the New Testament where they're affirmed, which is what you expect. Uh, and so a lot of them don't even want to have that engagement. Uh, I, I can't help that. But when you look at all these these denominations, these I'll call them verticals, I agree with you. I'm not sure a lot of them are going, going to course correct. However, when you look and you have a slice across all of these, I believe there is a strong remnant. And they are looking for what can I do? And, uh, you know, as a teacher, the teacher in me, wants to give them the strongest biblical argument so they can have the conviction to stand for their faith. And then, as I said, I think we need to, to recommit. And that's what I'm hoping to, to do, to start a national conversation, grassroots, you know, that vertical slice across churches, and ideally with a few legislators, people in, in government, I think a, like a Jim Jordan type, he's, uh, he's not my congressman but he's he's in the district right next door but you know people that are god-fearing people those are the ones that i think if we can start to band together uh and, and have a recommitment i think it'll work and keep in mind in 1776 it was somewhere between 30 and 50 percent of the population were for separation the majority was not for separation 
They were either loyalists or they were indifferent. So it's not like we've got to turn the whole country around because at the founding, they might have had 40 to 50% at the most. And I think, we, Rob, we're not too far from that now. We just need to coalesce to, to recognize that this is how we engage God, we get him to show up, and then we go to keep doing the work that we talked about. You know, the different there's lots of different ideas and things we need to do, and obviously uh, we should go do those. Yeah, I actually think the numbers were quite a bit lower than that. I don't I don't think we had thirty percent on board at that time. But I mean, I mean, you, you can check me on that. Uh, let's take some questions from the audience. I see Walter has has a question or a comment. Anyone else? Uh, just raise your hand, and we'll get you in after Walter. So, Walter, you're you're on. Yeah, I have a couple of questions. Uh, First of all, over 99.7% of our so-called churches are not churches at all. They are incorporated businesses that have chosen to have a secretary of state be their creator. And as such, they're in opposition to the very first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me. So, from my point of view, I think we have to create a movement that is dedicated to trying to restore our republic and the principles upon which we were founded that are biblical principles. But if we're going to do that, we have got to have leadership that has a viable plan and the tools that are needed to implement that plan. And we don't have those things today. I, in the worst way, uh, well, I'd like to go back to 1993. We had leadership. We had Governor Meekham and Governor J. Bracken Lee of Utah and uh, former Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Ray Davis, uh, publisher of Media Bypass Magazine. We had great leadership, but we did not, and we had a plan, and that plan is still in existence, I might add. It hasn't changed. But what we did not have is the capability of uniting people. There was no internet in those days. Today, we have the internet. We have the technological capability of being able to create a movement. And the plan is still in place. But what I see lacking is the leadership. It just isn't there. And uh, one of the first orders of business, uh, we all need to, to get down on our hands and knees and repent. That's number one. And uh, to commit ourselves to doing what is right, because our problem is a spiritual problem. It's all wrapped up in J417. We simply are not doing what is right. And we somehow have to convince people that, they have to do what's right, or this country is just going to become a, a page in history. And uh, it all begins with leadership. So how do we how do we enlist the sort of talent that is needed to provide that leadership is my question. So I think we agree on the need to uh, confess our national sin and cry out to God. To me, that's the uh, acknowledging, you know, acknowledging the, the sinful state and all the, you know, from the abortion to the 
sex trafficking that's going on right now across the border. There's so much horrific things. We need to acknowledge that and confess it. We need to appeal to God for help. And I think that when we do that, I think God will present some of those leaders that we've been looking for. Just like in 1776, the First Continental Congress, they got together in, uh, was it 74, I think, or certainly 75. And uh, as they started to coalesce around the idea that they, they needed to separate and uh, form a covenant to, to start at the United States of America, George Washington emerged as the natural leader. I think that we'll have that happen. God has a way, uh, has a habit of supplying what's needed once we do that first step, which you acknowledged, which is we've got to repent of our national sin and we've got to ask him for help. And uh, and I think he'll move. Well, before I, before yeah. I get out of bed in the morning, I ask God for direction and protection and uh, just pray that he will sooner or later have the necessary leadership come forth and uh, uh, either develop or adopt a plan that's dedicated to restoring the republic. But if you look at the that being an end goal, then you have to ask, well, what are the major objectives that must be satisfied? And we first of all need a spiritual reawakening and a recommitment of the people of this nation to God. And secondly, we have got to address the issue of these churches that are incorporated businesses that are in opposition to the very first commandment. We have to somehow get people to either force those incorporated businesses to unincorporate and get right with God or to walk away from them. The best thing that could happen in my mind is for all the pulpits to or the pews to to be vacant this coming Sunday and uh, uh, let people know that, hey, we're serious. You know, you've got to get right with God or you're not going to fix the problems of this country. So we need leadership that is dedicated to not only that, but if we're going to make America great again, there are some imperatives. You have to control your own destiny. If you're going to do that, you have to get the U.S. out of the U.N. You have to get monetary policy out from under the fifth plank of the Communist Manifesto and into compliance with the Constitution. You have to find a way of shedding America and Americans of the ungodly created and unconstitutional debt that we theoretically owe and can't repay a penny of, I might add. So there are certain objectives that have to be worked on, and we need a team of people addressing each of these. Now, I'm tied up with Reverend Cook. I don't know whether you know Bill or not, but he is the founder of the Black Robe Ministry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he is a very, very key element in what we need to do. But there are a lot of key organizations that fit that category, and they need to be adopted and worked with. Certainly the sheriffs have a role to play. The uh, Overpasses for America group, I think, have a, a wonderful potential to be able to draw people's attention to an initiative to restore the republic. But again, we don't have the tools with which to organize people. And that is going to take some leadership. And I am, uh, thanks to Mr. Pugh, 
he put me in touch with his web developer, and I'm willing to fund the completion of the development of the website that I paid Roger or Sami $5,000 to do last year, and he didn't do it. But I will only do it when I see that there is a viable leadership team and an organization or individual that can accept and distribute funds on behalf of the movement. Then I will open my pocketbook and uh, uh, hire this group that Rob put me in touch with to finish the website. Well, I think if uh, if it's God's will to uh, restore and revive this country, um, he's going to do so uh, through individual repentance first and then national repentance. But that's only going to come... You know, God has a has a tendency to be a little heavy-handed with us when we are this this far off the rails. When we as, need it, as we are, we we need. You know, we've needed another nine eleven since probably two thousand two. So, you know, yeah. I, I hate to say it, but uh, we need we need a wake up call, and it's it's coming. Uh, Harry had a question. I don't know if you still do there. Are you still there with us, Harry? I'm still here. Okay. You know, it's not a, well, it's a question, but it's one I've, I've commented on before. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, everybody that's had anything to say, we need leaders. But leaders can't lead if they don't have somebody to lead. And there are, the, the country is so split and the, the surveillance is so strong. Okay, you know, we got the internet. Uh, the last thing I want to do is put out too much of my own name on the internet saying that I'm more than willing to, to up, be, be a part of an uprising or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, the organization, you know, the organizational ability needs to be there in the leaders, but he still needs people to lead. Now, you know, we know of a group, well, up in Wisconsin, out in Ohio, and one in Colorado. That's a long ways between each one, every one of them. Now, there's people in between, I'm sure, but how do you find them? Now, nobody's ever answered that question. Well, we 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 have a network, Harry. <laughs> so I, I know there are small groups and small pockets out there, but again, um, what we are able to do is limited until we have individual repentance uh, and national repentance. You're absolutely uh, right. Until, until people start to seek God. There are so many out there. I would say the vast majority of Americans have no idea who God is, and they don't care. They're not interested. Until that happens, until something causes them, it's like an, an individual life. Until you hit rock bottom, you don't, you don't seek God. But there's coming a day very soon, I think, when, um, when we're going to be. Um, Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I was going to just build on the point that um, if you look, you know, as an engineer, I look at patterns in history. And, and if you go back about 80 years or so, you get to World War II. You go back another 80 years, you get to about the Civil War. You go back another 80 years, you're at the Revolution. And, and there seems to be a pattern around these events. And they're preceded often by awakenings and revival. You know, the first great awakening, who was growing up during the first great awakening? It was the founding generation. 
And, uh, and then the Second Great Awakening was in the early 1800s. And uh, 40, 50 years later, they're fighting the Civil War. I think about, uh, I saw the movie uh, uh, Jesus Revolution. And uh, I remember that growing up. I was uh, like 10 in the 70s. And uh, that's when my, my parents, they were already saved, but they really got serious about their faith. And, uh, and I'm, I don't know about you all, but I'm seeing more of, a, of a, an awakening, I would call it. I wouldn't call it revival yet. Uh, and, and I think it's because we are, we, we're sort of in that natural cycle where the, the uh, culture has turned its back on God, yet we do have a remnant. We have a remnant of folks who at an early age accepted Christ, and it's, it's time for us to coalesce. And, you know, what's the first thing we do? And this is my point in the book. I, I don't necessarily want to go on uh, the Internet and say, you know, we need to do an uprising. The very first thing I want to do is recommit to God because I want to, first of all, follow the biblical template. And second of all, give him a chance to, to move because what's happening in America is, is easy for him to fix. It's impossible for us or nearly impossible but easy for God. So this is, this is why I'm, you know, on a personal mission. I feel like, you know, a lot, we all have unique gifts and missions. I, I firmly believe this. I've, I've got marching orders. Everyone on the call here has gifts and marching orders. And my marching orders were to be obedient and write the book and try and get the word out. And we're trying to re-educate people so that we can recommit and then reframe the, the, the conversation about who are we as Americans? I think that's critical to win the hearts and minds of people that are undecided. And then then there's the plan, <laughs> things you guys have talked about. What are the specifics? And there are a lot of good ideas there. Uh, so just to, I think that's part of what's happening. And I'm encouraged by it. I, I feel like we're living in historic times. And uh, I know I have a big God, and I, I just can't wait to see what he does if we follow the biblical template. Yeah, I think you said that really well, uh, Mark. It's what I, I'm, I'm seeing people wake up. I'm, I'm seeing them start to wake up. It's, it's the beginning of an awakening. It's we're, we're not into it yet, but it's yeah. the beginning. The beginning not a revival, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we haven't revived yet, but we're waking up. So, yeah. um, Walter. Walter? Uh, I, think you, I think you hit your it's mute muted. button. Yeah, you're muted, Walter. Can't can't hear you, Walter. Well, let's 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 move on. Um, so, Mark, we we see this big push towards uh, globalism, and we have uh, now the um, uh, the World Health Organization putting together this uh, pandemic treaty, which uh, is a disaster in the in the making. It's you know it's putting the treaty together first and then they're putting the, you know, the, the next pandemic, I'm sure it's just waiting in the wings until this thing is signed. Mm-hmm. Does God want sovereign nations or does he want globalism? Oh, that's a great question. And it speaks to the charge. You know, people like us are often accused of being Christian nationalists. And, uh, and so let's ask the question, is God a globalist or a nationalist? And the answer is he's clearly into nations. He not only tells us that, but he he constantly reaffirms it throughout the Old Testament. And by the way, when the first group of people ignored that command, remember I said, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. 
first group of people didn't want us to scatter and they built a tower and what did god do he confused their language why because he is dead set against globalism and so and people have been trying to rebuild babylon ever since they have they have they want to have a one world order and christians all the smell this a mile away but rob uh, you know i don't know what it is about they, they just don't see that clear dimension of the bible that reinforces uh, uh, this idea of nations he clearly desires that we live in separate and sovereign nations and one of the reasons is because you have lots of experiments it's almost like you know america's got 50 states we're able to look around and say hey california's not doing too well florida's doing a lot better what's different and uh, he wants that for nations as well there's no doubt about it yeah yeah so um moving on here i just want to try to get in a few current news topics while we still have time um, but let's talk about the, the homosexual and the, and the transgender indoctrination of our people. Clearly, um, you know, it, it was in the communist goals of, uh, I believe, 1964, was it? Yep. And, um, after all the people, but especially the children, aren't they? They are. They are. And it started slow. They first said, we just want to be accepted. And, and they made a little bit of ground. And, of course, we know what happened 50 years later through a series of judicial rulings that were completely against the law of nature and of nature's God, by the way. Uh, we got to the point where the Supreme Court said that uh, same-sex unions, a marriage, you know, constituted what we would call a legitimate marriage. And, of course, it's just not, it's not possible. It's like drafting a law to outlaw gravity. It's just not the way the universe works. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now you've got this, this encroachment and the taglines, things like, you know, love knows no bias, lead with love, all these different ways that folks are trying to take the compassion that we as Christians are supposed to have in abundance and turn it against us to say, well, you're not loving, you're intolerant. And that argument has caused so many Christians to, you know, curl up in a fetal position and feel like they, they can't answer it and they can't, you know, tell someone, listen, I'm not, I'm not an ally. I, I don't believe in that. And here's why. And, so, you know, explain it at a minimum in a calm, respectful way. And so as a result, we've left the field and, uh, and they have continued to encroach. And of course, they're becoming more and more brazen about this with the drag queen story hour. And, uh, and it's really, it's becoming, I've heard a, a phrase, the transing of America. That's what's happening. They're coming for our kids. and Well, and they openly admit that they are. They so are. They want to groom them at a young age, confuse their moral framework. This is why, the, again, the moral law is absolutely critical. And that's why it was posted in every schoolroom, in every courtroom, until that ruling in the early 60s where they, they said, you know, separation of uh, church and state, that was the 47 ruling. But then they said no prayer, no Bible reading in the early 60s, 62 and 63. And mm-hmm. then they started systematically removing the Ten Commandments from the public square to the point where we have no you know, national memory of, of that. One of the first things that would be on my list would be to As get the celebrate- Ten Commandments back out there. Yes, yes. Uh, 1963 and then uh, 10 years later we had... Uh... Roe v. Wade. Legalized baby. As we celebrate Pride.
Producer number two keeps making noise on our show. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if there was a question there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you have a question, Jonathan? No, sir. Just pulling up content for... Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, oh, seven minutes left. How long is that thing? Four minutes. Let's watch two minutes of it. It'll make you sick. I'm sorry to have to show this to you folks, but um, we need to make that point. Pride on the progress we've made over these past years, there's still work to be done. So to those of you out there who are still working against equal rights, we have a message for you. You think we're sinful? You fight against our rights. You say we all lead lives you can't respect. But you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, just this once, you're correct. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. You can keep them from disco. Warn about San Francisco Make him wear pleated pants, we don't care We'll convert your children Okay, that's good. We'll that's, that's, I think you get the point. Wow. Um, that, I think I saw for the first time last year, and I... Mm, sorry to have to do that to you folks, but that's the plan. That's the plan. So anyway, um, I, I did have, I have way more information here than I wanted to get out today than we're going to have time for, but. Um, do it again. Yeah, what's that? We'll do it again. Yeah, we will. We will. You know, it seems like a lot of what we've been experiencing is uh, well-planned and organized. And it, it, it looks to me like theater. You know, for a while there, we had the. You know, the massive train de derailments, one right after another, chemical spills and explosions, and all of a sudden that just stopped. And then, you know, we've had all the food manufacturing plants mysteriously go up in smoke all across the country. I, I forget the number, maybe Mark, you know, but seems odd to me that in all these huge man food manufacturing plants, there hasn't been one operating sprinkler system, you know. Um, I'm just saying, and then, then we went into the UFOs and the Chinese spy balloons and one minute it's that and the next minute it's, uh, uh, I-95, uh, collapsing. So yep. it seems like our infrastructure is under attack along with our, our children are under attack. Uh, the minds and hearts and souls of our people are under attack and it, it seems deliberate to me. It seems like it's being done and not to mention our Southern border, with uh, countless thousands of uh, military-age young men from China coming across the border. These are not Mexican people, folks. Uh, not all of them. It, uh, it seems like uh, we are being invaded, and it seems like all this is happening very highly orchestrated and being done from within. Yeah, I, I agree, unfortunately. This is why on one hand, again, I'm sort of uh, bipolar here. The engineer program manager in me that wants to fix things looks at this and says, this is a well-orchestrated plan and, and they've really uh, co-opted 
and infiltrated all of the key institutions, including the church. And uh, what do we do? I mean, it, it does seem hopeless. But then the other part of me, the Christian side of me says, you know what, that this has happened before. We have a big God. I don't know if we're living in the end times, but I think there are a lot of people that maybe have a little bit of rapture fever and they're so convinced that we're living in the end times that they don't think we should do anything. Uh, and that's not the case. The Bible doesn't say that you should help and you know establish and maintain justice, except in the end times, which you don't know when they'll be. You know, this doesn't make any sense. Well, we see, that is them. that is the most paralyzing uh, theology that the church yeah. has ever experienced. And uh, regardless of where you stand on the rapture, um, like you said, we're not supposed to do nothing. We're supposed to occupy until he returns. We don't have a choice. Yeah. So, uh, Walter, if your microphone's turned on, you can talk. But you only have one minute because we're down to three. <laughs> the open borders are United Nations policy, and I have written a paper on that that's on that website I had developed. Uh, that's number one. Number two, that uh, uh, God told us to stand fast in the liberty in which we were provided. That's Galatians 5.1, if you will. And I think it, it's our challenge to stand as best we can, and uh, we can only do it by relying on his guidance. Well said, and I would say that uh, Christians of all people need this information that is that you will find in Mark's book, and um, most of all, what we need is the is is God's word. We need to be in God's word uh, daily. If we really believe it's the word of God, then is there anything more important for us to be spending our time on? Because the world is going to be looking to us for answers when this. Uh, next thing comes down the road and it is coming. So Mark, yeah. you have the last, last two minutes. Uh, uh, tell us, tell us uh, your final thoughts and tell people where they can find your book. And I have a question cause I'm going to give you the last few minutes, but I have a question. Um, can I get an autographed copy if I, if I email you? <laughs> We I don't want one of these Amazon copies. I want an autographed copy. Well, I'll tell you what, get an Amazon copy and leave a review. I mean, the, okay. the reviews have been really strong. People that have, that have read the book, uh, but yeah, we can arrange uh, we can arrange an autographed book. Happy to do that. Okay, great. Okay, and and you can get this at my website. Just to answer that question, defendamericanliberty.com, or wherever books are sold, like Amazon. And and like you, I on one hand, I don't want to send people on Amazon, but I need about seventy reviews, is what I'm told. That'll help kick up that algorithm to, uh, you know, suggest the book as people are looking at books. So I actually need about another, I don't know, 60 people to go on and get one, even if it's uh, a uh, ebook. The ebooks are only like two bucks, so you can get an ebook and then leave a rating. Uh, either way, though, I, I guess I just end making the point that this whole journey for me has taken my faith which was, you know, I would say my faith was growing. But as I really understood this part of our of our theology, the Christian faith with respect to the citizenship duty and the, res the responsibility that we have to help to love our neighbor by helping protect their rights. That's how we love our neighbor, even if they say things we disagree with. But um, if we learn how to talk about this, you can use it as an evangelistic tool. I have a whole chapter on this, by the way. Uh, then this is how God uses 
uses nations that are following him. Deuteronomy 4, Moses says it very clearly. The nations of the world will look at you and they'll come check you out. And in chapter 4, I tell the story about the Queen of Sheba coming to check out Israel. And, uh, and that's exactly God's Old Testament evangelistic strategy. So we need to be able to talk about these things. In fact, I'm doing it where I work. I've had conversations with some of my senior leaders. And I just go in and say, hey, I've got some concerns. You know, there's different worldviews. And as I explained the founding worldview, I'm evangelizing. So that's probably the number one objection I get. And the last thing I want to leave you with is that's not an objection. That's an evangelistic strategy if you know how to talk about it. And the right. book will help you do that. Right. Amen. DefendAmericanLiberty.com. And we have been speaking with Mark Burrell, the author of that book. Please go to that website and check it out. And please go to, let's let's help them out. Go to Amazon and, and, and do our thing and, and put in a, a review. Thank you for being here, Mark. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I never know what I'm going to get when I have a new guest that I haven't met before. So <laughs> sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get them to talk about their own book. But you did a great job, and I, I'm glad you came, and thank yeah. you very much. Thank so. you. Let's do it again. Okay. Well, folks, we will see you next time. Uh, next week, Dr. Mike will be in, in this seat. Um, but until then, God bless you, and take care. Thank you.